on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. And happy Friday, happy Friday. everybody. I'm glad it's Friday. Mm-hmm. We have another full show for you today, like we do every day. We're going to talk about the economy with Dr. Jack Rasmus. We'll talk about Israel's targeted assassination program yeah. with Miko Pellet. That's going to be an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. We'll talk all about domestic and foreign policy with Ted Rawl. And we also have an update for you on politics around the country. And finally, news of the weird. And one of the three stories is particularly weird this time. I'm excited. But first, we want to update you on some other stories in the news. Mm -hmm. First, a Russian rocket hit an apartment building in the southern Ukrainian city of Odessa today, killing at least 19 people. The Kremlin didn't issue a statement, but military observers blamed a Soviet-era rocket that was either unguided or had an antiquated guidance system. Mm-hmm. The reason I bring this up, besides the fact that it's an awful, horrible tragedy, mm-hmm. human tragedy, was there was debate over this uh, purported Russian attack on a shopping mall mm-hmm. the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked to people who follow these things, and they said the same thing, that, sure, this was an attack on a shopping mall. Why would the Russians attack a shopping mall? They actually didn't. Mm -hmm. It was either an unguided or a poorly guided missile, Mm -hmm. and the shopping mall happens to be next to a munitions factory. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened. Um, That's not an excuse. Lots of innocent civilians are are dying. Yes. But but it was worth noting, I thought. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, In other news, over the past two days, the Russian and Ukrainian governments traded 144 prisoners of war, including members of the Azov Battalion. Most of the prisoners on both sides were severely wounded, with injuries including gunshot and shrapnel wounds, broken bones, blast trauma, which is always terrible, burns, and even amputated limbs. This is the largest exchange of prisoners since the war began. And I think it's an incredibly positive development. Right. I think that's how we have to see this, right? That you have communication between these two parties uh, such that you can facilitate an exchange like this and it will happen. You know, no one's backing out. I think that is really good. Yes. You know, to the extent that there is good news out of this conflict. Yes. I I think that that is. Yeah. And so hopefully we'll see. We see more of it and we see more conversations and we see a move towards some kind of resolution. I read something just recently in a biography of Abraham Lincoln that that struck me. And then I I read something just a few days later saying that that they're doing the same thing in this war. One of the things that Abraham Lincoln did during the Civil War was he sent a letter to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States, um, offering to just release uh, the wording that was used release without parole. Um, all medical professionals being held as prisoners of war mm. because being medical professionals, they should be helping people to recover from their wounds. Mm-hmm. And so anytime uh, a physician or a medic was captured during or after battle, he was immediately released once he he showed his bona fides. Mm-hmm. And both sides did that through the course of the war mm-hmm. just because it was good for you know, human rights. Yeah. Uh, the Russians and the Ukrainians are doing the same thing. And so I think that's also a positive step. Yeah, that is very good. 
There was some news. You know, I heard this yesterday, and I we had so much to talk about on the show that I completely forgot about it. Right. But the Wall Street Journal commissioned a a survey of Ukrainians to uh, to try and understand attitudes about the war. Yes. Um, and we got the results yesterday, and it's really interesting. I mean, of course, you know, the Wall Street Journal and its reporting on this says it, it partnered with a, a Ukrainian pollster. Uh, to to commission the poll, mm-hmm. they spoke to a thousand adults between the ninth and the thirteenth of June. Um, I think it is, imp- you know, it's a poll being conducted during wartime, right? right? So you have to sort of put that little asterisk by the side. Also, ninety three percent of respondents were living in areas controlled by the Ukrainian government. Whether right. or not that has a bearing on it, but certainly this, it is not going to include, I think, uh, people in the Donbass, mm-hmm. right? But that said, there were a lot of really interesting. Um, responses here. The one that is <laughs> did not get a mention in the Wall Street Journal's write-up, which was pretty comprehensive of this poll. They left out this question on who is responsible for the war, and uh, perhaps you will understand why after this, John. Unsurprisingly, eighty-five percent of these respondents said that Russia was responsible for the war. Seventy mm-hmm. percent said the Zelensky government is responsible for the war. And this is a combination of, um, you know, like somewhat agree and strongly agree. Mm -hmm. Right. These Mm -hmm. figures. Fifty-eight percent said the United States is responsible for the war. How many? Fifty-eight. Wow. Fifty-eight percent of respondents. Fifty-five percent said NATO is responsible or at least partly responsible for for the conflict. Right. Absolutely no mention of this in the Wall Street Journal. And other uh, interpreters of of these results have said, you know, it is possible that that you could understand the U.S. and NATO responsibility as, you know, sending weapons too little too late or Ukraine not being prepared enough for the war. Thirty five percent, however, said the responsibility lay at the feet of Ukraine's ultra right nationalists, which is not a majority, but is not an insignificant number of people saying they're the reason for this conflict. And I just think gives even from within Ukraine a far more nuanced perspective on how they feel about mm-hmm. this war that is happening in their country. You know, one of the things that surprised me about this poll, too, I got a little bit of a chuckle mm-hmm. over it, um, was uh, 75% of Ukrainians said that they were pleased with the U.S. And UK responses mm-hmm. to the war. Ninety percent were pleased with Poland's response. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Poland's taken in a bunch of refugees. A lot of refugees. Yeah, yeah. And they were they're mad at France and Germany for right. for not sending enough. There was other really interesting stuff here. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, Ukrainians consistently expressed high levels of trust in Zelensky personally, lower levels of trust in their government uh, to do what's right for Ukraine or what's right for them, their families. Mm. Uh, they were asked about threats to Ukraine's security. Unsurprisingly, 97 percent called Russia's invasion a major threat to security. Eighty five percent said corruption among Ukraine's high officials and the wealthy was a serious threat to Amen. Ukraine's security. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think absolutely right. Um, there was this also, I thought, I don't know, John, I'm curious what you think about this. The question is, in order to help support Ukraine's effort in the war in the future, are you and your family willing to make major sacrifices, minor sacrifices, or no sacrifices when it comes to your personal financial situation? 34% said they would make major sacrifices. That's it? Yeah. 
44% said they'd make minor sacrifices. 14% said no sacrifices. So that is a sort of also a complicating wow. picture of the war. I mean, you also have, again, I have to say, um, you know, support for for Zelensky, right? Generally speaking, majority support for the government and, and trust in the government. But that, I think, is a very interesting highlight of like how much Ukrainians actually want to sacrifice for this mm -hmm. conflict. Mm -hmm. There was also some interesting contradictions in um, what Ukrainians find acceptable as an end to the war, as terms for a peace versus what they expect. Mm -hmm. uh, 89% said it would be unacceptable to to have a peace agreement that included Russia controlling any yes. land that they had occupied after the invasion. Correct. 81% said unacceptable to have Russia con occupying or uh, controlling any land that they'd uh, controlled before mm -hmm. February. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the, uh, saying that's unacceptable means would seem to imply that you want to hold out for a total Ukrainian victory. Right. However, the same respondents do not, do not think that's going to happen. 20% uh, see a prolonged military stalemate, which is very depressing. Yeah. 66% uh, say, th you know, th their nation's forces will succeed in driving Russia out of territory that it has seized this year. So they're not unrealistic about how they think this war might end, but mm -hmm. they also, you know, it's a, a clear desire to maintain, at least among these respondents, yes. right, which represent, you know, the chunk of the, the Donbass is like sort of a, th what is that, like a third of the country? I, no, a little bit less. It's less than that. Less but, than that. But it's, it's, a, but it's a little sizable chunk. Over chunk. There. Yeah. Um, not including those yeah. people who might want want different things but you know so so a complicated picture here and i think worth worth looking at and i do think it is you know shame on the wall street journal yeah. for excluding that particular That's question right. shame on the wall street journal one more bit of russia news uh the trial of american wnba star Brittany griner begins today in a court just outside the city of moscow the press is banned from the proceedings a kremlin spokesman said that griner would not have been arrested if she we're not guilty of a crime, which is kind of a gratuitous yeah, you know, okay. slap at the system. Yeah. Uh, she's been charged with importing drugs after vape cartridges containing THC oil were found in her luggage. Mm -hmm. She faces 10 years in prison. And to tell you the truth, I don't care what the, what the Kremlin spokesman says. Mm -hmm. This is a political trial. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that she's going to be convicted and then she'll be traded to the United States. Yeah, you do have Russian to think if we weren't in the middle of this conflict and you have someone, a very high profile basketball player who's playing your national team, that the thing that you would think would happen is you just ignore this and right. you make it go away. Right. So, yeah, I think you're I think you're exactly right. Uh, a little taste of politics. Uh, interestingly enough, Donald Trump said yesterday that he would consider uh, Governor Ron DeSantis as a running mate. I thought this was so funny. <laughs> I I, I love this. It's hilarious. What a, you know, I mean, yeah, that's cold. That's a cold move. I'm not worried about you. You're not, a, you're, you're so insignificant as a threat. That's sure. Yeah. You're my running mate. That's great. His, I, his I, he went on was, to say like, I helped make him blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 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 He made him and yeah. he's a nice enough guy. He's he a said. nice enough guy. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> ouch. Yeah. That also has to, has to pinch a little bit if you're uh, Mike Pence. Are you going to talk about Kamala Harris at all later? Um, I hadn't put it in, but uh, it, it's speaking, important. Speaking of ouch, yeah, right. 
Uh, Kamala Harris says Joe Biden's running in 2024 and I'm running with him. And then she has to clarify that by saying, yeah, if she had he's to running, if he's running, if he's I'm, running, I'm running with him. But he probably is for sure. Right. Well, I mean, why even Full make her stop? She says. Yeah. And then they're like, whoa, wait a minute. If he runs, why even make her do that? Right. Why? And then also it's embarrassing. Again, tell me if I'm wrong. But didn't she come out and say, no, 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 we're not going to we're not touching the filibuster for Roe. Mm hmm. 24 hours later, Joe Biden at the G7 says, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, we should we should make an exception for Roe versus Wade. Kamala Harris, again, my position on Kamala Harris is very clear. I don't (laughs) like her. I'm with the vast majority of Americans in not liking Kamala Harris. But this White House is treating her badly. They really are. They are. They are leaving her out to make an ass of herself. Mm -hmm. And if this if this is the communication issues that her office has been complaining about anonymously, I see their point on this issue. I agree. Yeah. Today, um, Hillary Clinton made a kind of an odd statement, too. She said that if Joe Biden runs for reelection, she'll endorse him if he runs for reelection. And then here's Biden telling Obama that it makes him so mad when people doubt that he's running for re-election. You, why are you making Kamala Harris walk back her statement about it then? Exactly. These guys, they they cannot get their story straight. Before we get to our first guest, I want to make uh, one more note. This is on uh, the stock market. The stock market yesterday ended its worst six-month start to a year since 1970. That's mm-hmm. overall. Mm-hmm. Individual markets were actually worse. The S&P 500 is down 20.6% so far this year. The Dow Jones industrial averages have fallen 15.3%. And the tech-heavy NASDAQ had its worst six-month period ever. Mm -hmm. It's off 29.5%. That's a record. Mm -hmm. Historically, the markets have bounced back after such poor first-half performances, but you know what they say in the commercials? Past performance is not an indication of future results. Yep. I think that's what we're heading into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have fantastic guests today. We have we have Dr. Jack Rasmus, who's going to join us in just a couple of minutes. Miko Pellet and Ted Rawl will talk about politics. We'll talk about news of the weird. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned and we'll be right back. We bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are right now diving into some economic conversations, both domestic and international. Joining us for them is Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's an economist, radio show host, and author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Jack, thanks for joining us again. My pleasure. So I'm going to repeat a little bit of what John just said about the state of the U.S. economy. As we wrap up this first half of the year, uh, the, we had the the worst opening six months of a year for the stock market since 1970. S&P peaked in January, has dropped nearly 21 percent over the last six months. We all know the stock market is not 
the economy in quotes, but we also learned this week that the U.S. economy shrank at an annual rate of 1.6 percent in the first quarter of 2022. This is the third estimate from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, and it is bleaker than the one they gave last month and probably more accurate because now they have more data to look at. And so I wonder why you think the economy is performing even worse than expected, which was not great. Uh, And also what you think we should be preparing for for the next six months. Well, I've been predicting uh, a recession um, by the end of this year, six months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was kind of standing out there alone saying saying that uh, even the bravest mainstream economists were saying, oh, it won't be to 2023. Well, Larry Summers just came out this morning and agreed with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said it's likely within six, six months. Um, so that just says something about mainstream economists, I guess. But, uh, you know, I've been noticing that uh, consumer spending uh, was not that strong, even at the end of last year. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's two two thirds of the economy. And if that uh, goes south, then business investment uh, uh, follows. Uh, and uh, of course, um, the inflation uh, has just uh, put a cap on all that and guaranteed that that's what's going to happen. Um, you know, uh, we, if you look at consumer uh, spending and retail sales here for last month, May, uh, they're all stagnating or contracting. In real terms, you know, they report the nominal <laughs> and it looks mm-hmm. better. Uh, but in real terms, what counts, uh, we, we've got a contraction going. Yeah, 1.6 1, 1. Uh, uh, decline in the first quarter. Question is, what's the second quarter going to look like? Well, Atlanta right. Fed's uh, GDP says uh, stagnation. Uh, mm-hmm. So it could be worse. Uh, you know, it could be uh, a little better than a contraction, but... Uh, Look, the Fed is going to raise uh, interest rates another 75 basis points in July for sure, I predict, and mm-hmm. maybe after that. Uh, and all the markets are saying recession, recession now. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think we're on the way. Let me ask you then, why Why do you have Joe Biden repeatedly saying that the U.S. GDP might grow faster than China's this year? Is this pure fantasy or is there some framework based in reality that you can use to come to this conclusion? Well, you know, the official forecast for GDP for all of 2022 is 2.6%. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we've had a contraction in first quarter, probably stagnation in second quarter. How the hell are you going to get 2.6%? You would have to grow the economy at 5% throughout the second mm-hmm. half of this year. Uh, you think you're going to do that, raising interest rates into it, which is already uh, you know, dragging down housing, dragging down uh, goods production uh, and inflation? Uh, no way. Uh, I think that's what he's, he's doing. He's looking at 2.6%. But even if it uh, was 2.6%, uh, that doesn't compare to China at all. Now that China's uh, opening up after its COVID shutdown, um, you know, it's, it's going to grow 4 to 5 percent. There's no way the U.S. economy is going to grow 4 to 5 percent in the second half mm-hmm. or 2.6 percent over the course of the year. The other thing that I want to ask, Joe Biden at his press conference in Madrid yesterday was asked what materially supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes would mean for the American people. And he really sidestepped this question, right? Didn't answer, talked about how this is about defending sort of the liberal world order. So I want to to ask you for an answer. Our government is providing hundreds of millions of dollars at a pop to Ukraine, adding up now to, I think, more than $7 billion since just 
February. And so whether you think this money is coming from a real finite kitty or whether you take this MMT view that this should be understood as something the government can and should create at will, what is for sure is that the bulk of this money is going to end up in the pockets of American defense contractors, and they're already warping our economy. And of course, support for Ukraine includes sanctions on all kinds of goods that are that are affecting prices. And so I wonder, you know, what what would you say if you were Joe Biden? Uh, what, what should he have said uh, uh, about how all of this support is going to affect the lives of Americans in reality in our country? Well, it's going to be more uh, commodities and uh, energy inflation, no doubt, because of the sanctions. Um, and uh, on top of that, you know, the sanctions are resulting in higher interest rates, which is provoking a re recession. That, that's the legacy of this. Uh, while, uh, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, it's not the whole story of inflation. It's a, it's a big part of that. We see that now. Um, so, you know, he's just avoiding uh, the real facts. And that $7 billion, uh, you know, is, is what's uh, going to be needed every month, according to Ukraine, just to keep its economy afloat. That's not mm -hmm. counting all of the military... Um, contributions uh, from the budget. And as you said, uh, that money, the military spending, which is about $60 billion now so far, I, I predict $100 billion this year for Ukraine. Oh, $100, right $100 billion. Wow. Wow. That goes right into the pockets of uh, the U.S. military, the military sure. spending for Ukraine. That doesn't go to Ukraine. Uh, that goes mm -hmm. to uh, Raytheon and Boeing and so forth right out of the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Treasury. Right. So uh, it's going to be more deficit spending. No doubt about that. Wow. Yeah. And then what, you know, Americans live with higher gas prices. Americans live with inflation. Americans live with being told that we can't afford this or that social program. Americans live with being told for decades into the future that no, no, the most pressing issue is our national debt. And this is why we can't have nice things. And I think it's really shameful that our leadership won't just come out and say that flat. Well, he did come out. He did come out. Biden did come out and say, uh, quote, almost verbatim here, uh, Americans would just have to put up with higher gas prices in uh, in the name of freedom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Who's freedom? Well, that's just the catchword for U.S. imperialism. I also want to talk about this. This was, I don't know, maybe I'm making too much of this, but the Wall Street Journal this morning uh, has a story about this, the wheat crisis, right? Which is sort of part of this larger food crisis. And the Wall Street Journal says this crisis is now abating. Uh, its story today says fine farm weather in the United States, Europe, and Australia, as well as a rush of Russian grain ships through the Black Sea, have brought wheat prices down. Uh, and so while prices still are still high, they have fallen more than a quarter from their post-invasion peak. And it seems like signs are pointing to, you know, a, a continued decline. And a major part of this is that Russia, which is expected to produce a record wheat crop, has been able to keep its grain exports flowing, even though, as the story notes, Western banks and insurers have been reluctant to touch Russian commodities. Uh, you know, Russian wheat is not under sanction. But, you know, there's there's increased uh, uh, there's reluctance to to deal with anything coming out of Russia, lest you be sanctioned later and have to change all of your, your business plans. Um, and so an analyst on the Washington, uh, the Wall Street Journal podcast this morning said that there has never really been a wheat crisis. There's been a wheat price crisis. And now this price drop 
is a welcome sign for vulnerable countries struggling with surging food prices. And so it's strange to me that, you know, the tone of this article is that Russia is somehow getting away with something by continuing to sell its grain. And so the implication is really that it would be acceptable for poor countries to go hungry if it means we get to deny Russia some income, which to me seems like a really terrible trade, uh, you know, both in, in a moral sense and also in terms of, of geopolitics. And so I wanted to ask your opinion first about what is the state of this global wheat price crisis and the global food price crisis? Is there a supply crisis or, or are we, uh, you know, verging on manufacturing hunger in places because prices are going to go so high? Well, first thing you got to understand that uh, wheat is a, a global commodity that's uh, bought and sold contracts on the global futures uh, exchanges, just like uh, industrial commodities, nickel and so forth, uh, and uh, uh, oil uh, commodities. And uh, speculators buy and sell these um, these contracts. It has nothing to do in the short term, day to day mm-hmm. or week to week, with the actual supply of these commodities. These people, mm-hmm. based upon what they think it's going to be, global speculators, finance capitalists, buy and sell this stuff, drive the price up and down, you know, quite quite quickly. Supply mm-hmm. cannot change that much. Demand does not change that much. And, uh, you know, what they're betting on now is that there's going to be a, a banner harvests uh, in uh, the U.S. and uh, to some extent in Europe. Uh, and uh, Russia, and that that uh, will increase the supply over months, that there'll be a good Mm -hmm. fall harvest, in other words. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's no guarantee that's true. I mean, uh, you know, the West, uh, Western U.S. is in drought. Uh, I'm not so Mm -hmm. sure we're going to have such a great uh, wheat harvest. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the speculators would change their tune and prices will go back up probably in a a month or so. Uh, So, I sh- I won't make too much about price of wheat uh, indicating anything real changing in the short run. Uh, mm-hmm. I-, I think, uh, yeah, there will be some increased uh, flow of, uh, of Russian wheat, uh, you know, out of the Sea of Azov ports uh, as uh, Ukraine uh, now increases some of its flow. There's been an agreement there. Uh, but, uh you know, uh, R- Russia and Ukraine provided 30% of the, the world's uh, wheat production. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't, uh, and it was uh, pretty much, uh, you know, obstructed here. Um, how much gets out, uh, I'm, uh, I wouldn't guess right now. But I'm, mm-hmm. I would buy into this thing that uh, there's going to be these banner harvests and all this wheat's going to come out of uh, Ukraine mm-hmm. and uh, Russia and that the price is going to go down. But that's what the speculators are saying, and that's why the price mm-hmm. is moving. Can I ask, though, just to be clear, are we if we don't see these great harvests, are we going to be facing a a true supply crisis or will it just be uh, still a a price crisis? Because a supply crisis, the two seem like different things. It seems like no one no one should go hungry if there is a price crisis. Yeah, well, I I think uh, there's going to be a, a supply problem here. For the rest mm-hmm. of the year, which means uh, you know, true supply will will cause prices to to rise here, um, you know, irrespective of the speculators' uh, effect on on prices. Um, and uh, you're going to see some real pressures in uh, uh, places like you know Egypt and the Middle East and uh, 
some places in Asia uh, that are really dependent on food supply, in Africa as well, on food mm-hmm. supply uh, coming out of uh, Russia, Ukraine. Um, and that's going to cause uh, in extra inflation in those, in those areas. Uh, other pressures are driving prices up in those areas too. So there's going to be more political instability uh, in emerging markets as we go forward. What do you think, you know, if there is uh, political instability in these emerging markets, if uh, we are seeing an actual supply problem and these are the markets that start to suffer, what do you think that does geopolitically, right? Do do you think that helps the West in any way? Because to me, it would seem like uh, you know, if you're in a country that's trying to buy weed and you can't afford it and you're looking at your people being hungry, I don't know that you are going to think, well, I'm happy to make this sacrifice for uh, for the liberal world order. Or if you think, you know, the, the calculations of these governments have put me in this position and I have a, a little bit less will to go along with what they want in the future. Yeah, well, I think emerging market countries are, are really uh, upset and, and gladly you know, so uh, because of uh, the war and the sanctions, and mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of like you know a pox on Europe. Here, here we go. The European tribes in another damn war, uh, mm-hmm. and they're the <laughs> ones uh, you know who who catch uh, the worst of it. And um, I, I think you're going to see, as we're already seeing, uh, some of the more major uh, emerging markets are uh, thinking about going uh, their own way, independent way. Um, you know, we, we have uh, uh, Iran and we have uh, Argentina now joining the BRICS, right? I think there's talks going on with Indonesia. Uh, they're they're going to try to go independent uh, uh, from the G7, the Europeans and, and the U.S., uh, and uh, chart their own economic path uh, to try to prevent, uh, you know, the problems that, that they're being afflicted with, with uh, inflation and, and with uh, food shortages and uh, trade, global uh, supply chains being totally disrupted again. Uh, they haven't mm-hmm. really uh, uh, healed from the COVID uh, uh, event, uh, which is still going on, by the way. And uh, mm-hmm. now they got these sanctions, which is disrupting global supply chains and trade routes even, even more. You know, I've often wondered here recently, you know, how the hell would the, you know, Biden and these guys are with, with supply chains so disrupted and restructured, why the hell would they join, uh, you know, this imperial adventure and these sanctions and NATO against Russia here and disrupt them even further? These guys aren't thinking the consequences of what they're doing economically. They're, they're really pretty lightweight when it comes to figuring out the you know, what's going to happen as a result of all this? There seems to be just no foresight in the administration at all on anything. It's mind-blowing, especially considering how long some of these people have been in or adjacent to government. I mean, it really, like, uh, this administration feels to me... uh, like a vi- the clearest demonstration in recent years of uh, how <laughs> how badly you can do your job and, and still keep it in government at this level. It's wild. I want to ask you one more question. Uh, this is about oil and about Joe Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia later this month. Um, Joe Biden 
it's either yesterday or just this morning, said he, no, 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 he's not going to ask the Saudis directly to increase oil production when he attends that Gulf Cooperation Council meeting later. Uh, when he was asked, Biden said, no, no, I'm not going to ask them. The Gulf states are all meeting. I've indicated to them that I thought they should be increasing oil production gen- generally, not Saudi Arabia in particular. You know, I, I hope they see that it's in their own interests to do so. And so, one— I mean, we've been getting reports about the U.S. asking Saudi Arabia to increase production, oil production, I think since February, right? Uh, we heard at the G7, this was that, uh, you know, Macron overheard telling Biden that the head of the UAE told him that neither it nor Saudi can actually really increase over the next six months. And so, you know— I just wonder why all the flip-flopping. A week ago, it was being reported that Biden was going to Saudi Arabia explicitly to ask for more oil production. Now he says he's not going to. You know, what What should we make of this? And what predictions would you make uh, about the price of oil and the price of gasoline in the future as a result? Well, of course he's going to go ask for an increase yeah. in production. You know, uh, th- three months ago, he actually did that. He raised the, you know, that, that idea, and uh, the, the Saudis said, no, no deal. <laughs> so what, mm-hmm. he's going to go over there now, and he's not going to uh, discuss that again? Of course he is. But mm-hmm. it looks like he's going hat in hand, which, of course, he is. And it, right. it's mm-hmm. not a good visual for him to uh, say, yeah, I'm going to go ask them, beg them, to increase production, which they're not going to do because the Saudis love the fact that the price of crude is so high. It's very profitable mm-hmm. for them. You see, what's happening is uh, uh, Joe Biden's running around the world and uh, trying to find ways to increase oil output for Europe. You know, he's got mm-hmm. uh, Europe agreeing now to cut off oil imports from Russia by the end of the year. Right? Mm-hmm. Phase it in. Well, uh, and of course, natural gas is being cut off too. Where, where the hell are the Europeans are going to get the oil? Uh, you know, Biden's got them to agree to it. Well, he's got to have to deliver. Well, not mm-hmm. just with uh, the Saudis, he's trying to deliver, uh, but you know, he even made an overture to uh, uh, Venezuela. And uh, the deal was Venezuela is going to send some oil to uh, Europe now, but he can't get the U.S. oil companies. Uh, to increase their output any more he, than he can get the, the Saudis because uh, the U.S. oil companies love the high prices as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's between a rock and a hard place. He's got to deliver for Europe before the winter and uh, is not coming from the U.S. and uh, it won't come from the Saudis. I think the Europeans come the winter are in deep doo-doo here as far as energy mm-hmm. is concerned. You're going to see massive uh, uh, rationing and uh, a lot of discontent. Uh, there's no way he's going to be able to replace European oil uh, by by December. And uh, mm-hmm. they will have to back off, I predict, of uh, shutting down all imports for Russia oil by that time. Let me ask you one last question, Jack. I know that you have been writing about the, the impact of Western sanctions on Russia. And I just wonder, I wonder what you see that impact being both in Russia and, and in the U.S. in the medium term, because certainly in the short term, uh, I think it's pretty clear who is suffering and who is not. I wonder how long you think the Russian economy can hold out and uh, and how much pain Americans are going to be willing to bear. Well, I think the Russian economy um, will contract and uh, just as the U.S. economy will, will contract because of these high prices. Uh, so I don't think it's going to contract any more uh, greatly different from uh, the rest of uh, the advanced economies. Uh, so that kind of suggests that uh, 
you know, the sanctions aren't all that uh, effective, as I've been saying. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, there's a lot of ways Russia gets around uh, the, the sanctions, uh, and that will continue. Uh, so the sanctions, uh, you know, aren't all that effective. And uh, some of the, the latest, uh, as I recently wrote, uh, uh, sanctions are, are just a joke. Uh, you know, that was... Uh, having to do with this price cap. Uh, the Europeans and the U.S. was going to set an artificial low price cap uh, on mm-hmm. oil as, as if the demand uh, could drive supply in this particular case, as I argued. Um, mm-hmm. what really, who's really going to be effective are emerging markets because the inflation that's the result in large part of these sanctions, right, uh, is resulting in uh, higher uh central bank Federal Reserve and other central bank interest rates, which is um, causing the dollar and other uh, currencies uh, to um, destabilize. The dollar is rising uh, pretty dramatically as interest rates rise in the U.S. And what that means for emerging markets is their currencies collapse in turn Mm because there's this reciprocal relationship between them. So what the emerging markets have to do the countries, Argentina and so forth, uh, they have to raise their interest rates to protect their currency, and that throws them into a deeper recession. And, of course, it raises their import prices because their currency collapsed. So what you're going to see is an even worse stagflation, in other words, a slowdown and inflation in these emerging market economies. So the impact, as bad as it is in the U.S. and, and Europe, which is pretty bad, of all this is going to be even worse than emerging market economies, which is going to drive them, you know, towards the bricks and uh, uh, trying to find some more independent independence uh, from from the G7 uh, economies, which is a long term mm-hmm. thing and trying to find another currency maybe uh, to do trading with. That was Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's an economist. He's got a radio show. He's an author. Jack, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find your most recent work? Yeah, just go to my blog, jackrasmus.com, where I have my articles, or join me on Twitter, where I uh, report day-to-day events going on. That's uh, at uh, drjackrasmus. Or my radio show, Alternative Visions, 2 p.m. on Fridays on the Progressive Radio Network. Lots of options there. Thanks again for joining us, Jack. We're going to take a break now on Political Misfits and come right back. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We'll talk to you in a minute. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Foreign Policy Magazine this week had an article written by Danielle Pletka, a senior foreign policy fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the former staff director at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee under the chairmanship of Senator Jesse Helms, which spoke in detail about Israel's policy of murdering Iranian scientists. Pletka says that in a span of four weeks, From late May to late June, seven Iranian scientists were murdered, most or all at the hands of the Mossad, Israel's intelligence service. She adds that targeted assassinations have been an official Israeli policy since 1962. Yeah, when the Mossad murdered a former Nazi rocket scientist who had gone to work for the Egyptians. 
Assassinations have continued unabated ever since. From the 1972 Munich Olympics terrorists to supergun inventor Gerald Bull to countless officials in the Iranian nuclear and missile programs. The Israelis say that the program is necessary for their survival, but Pletka asks if it's moral and whether a foreign policy that employs assassination actually works over the long term. We're joined by Miko Pellet. He's a human rights activist and the author of the books The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Welcome back, Miko. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Miko. Let's start with the most obvious question and what I expect will be the most obvious answer. Israel has had a targeted assassination program for 60 years, and it appears to have worked for them. But can such a program ever be moral? Absolutely not. Um, I don't think there's any question that there's uh, morality is is, uh, is is not really the issue here. It cannot be moral, and you would think that if the if this was effective, then at some point they could stop. But the fact that they keep going, Israel has been assassinated. Actually, the the political assassinations have been part of the Zionist um, the Zionist movement uh, strategy since before the state of Israel was established. Mm-hmm. They even assassinated Jews. In Palestine, who opposed, you know, who the, who opposed some of the Zionist policies, but you would think that at some point they would stop because if this was effective, then that'd be it, right? They assassinated right. that they could, and that'd be the end of it. But it's not. There's no end in sight. You know, this article. I, I want to just reiterate something that you just said. This article. Um, talked about Yitzhak Shamir, who later became a very important and powerful uh, politician and the prime minister of Israel. Uh, when he was fighting for Israeli independence, he was one of uh, part of these uh, one of these Zionist groups uh, that murdered the United Nations negotiator for Israel <laughs> because he wasn't pro-Zionist enough. And that he was offering up one alternative that didn't call for the creation of the state of Israel. And so he was killed. I think that was in 1946. It was really uh, dramatic, something I, I, hadn't, uh, I hadn't known. I think you're talking about Count uh, Volker Bernadotte, who was, a, who was a Swedish diplomat right. who, um, who was engaged in saving Jews during the Holocaust. And he was the... Um, and like you said, he was the he was the United Nations um, mediator, uh, you know, and, and and the assumption was that he would he would, you know, he would be the mediator and he would um, bring some kind of uh, a peaceful agreement between the Zionists and the Palestinians. He was assassinated because he supported the idea of the of the return of the refugees and that the city of Jerusalem would remain. Uh, international as opposed to being part of any one state, and that's why he was assassinated. It was 19, September 1948, and he was assassinated in broad daylight by people who were well-known, and uh, no one was ever arrested, and, the, and Sweden has a very good, strong diplomatic relations with Israel, so you have to wonder about this. Wow. So, I mean, they assassinated, they've been assassinating nonstop since the the state of Israel was established, going back to 1924 with the assassination of, of Jacob Dahan, who was a Jewish anti-Zionist, so, I mean, this is part of, uh, and it makes you wonder, and I think the conclusion is that kind of like a mafia or any other criminal organization, assassinations never stop, because when you engage in criminal behavior, you're always going to have enemies. Mm-hmm. So you can't stop killing people. 
you know, they're killing Iranians, they're killing Palestinians, they're killing Jews, you know, they killed, uh, they killed Jews. You wonder at one point, are they ever going to stop killing? And I think the answer is no. The Israelis in 2020 assassinated the head of Iran's nuclear program, uh, a man by the name of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Uh, in Tehran with a remote controlled machine gun that was mounted in the trunk of a car. The trunk popped open. The machine gun started firing. It was it was uh, uh, handled remotely and it, it killed him. An Israeli government official then gave an incredibly detailed account of this murder to The New York Times. The speculation at the time was that the Israelis wanted to tell the Iranians with the leak of the details, we know who you are, we know where you are, and we can get you anytime we want. This assassination program has certainly set the Iranian nuclear and missile programs back years. But in the long run, can such a program be successful? The The U.S. experience has been when you kill the number three in Al Qaeda, which we've done, you know, a dozen times, they just pick another number three. Isn't it the same situation? Of course, and I think that I think we all have to be very grateful that the Iranians show the restraint that they show, and there's not a, an all-out war, uh, you know, going on because they are showing restraint. And 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 you 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 know, I mean, it goes back to, I, I mean, I don't know how far you want to go back, but it goes back to this principle of whether or not assassinations, political assassinations, um, are an, well, never mind effective, but are they a, a tool that should be legitimized, should be considered legitimate? And if a state, and I think the answer is no, they're, they're not legitimate, they should not be considered legitimate. I don't think international law condones political assassinations. And I think it's time for the world to stand up and stop Israel and stop this thing. Um, but this takes us to a whole other issue. Miko, the Israelis have focused not just on Iranian scientists, of course, but also on uh, Palestinians, on Lebanese, on Syrians. They've killed Palestinian terrorists in the, or not even terrorists, they've killed Palestinian leaders even in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Syria, in Europe. Uh, but they've also killed a lot of Palestinian nobodies and innocent Palestinians. It seems to me, at least judging by the American experience, that you can't kill everybody. And if anything, anger over such a program is going to end up being a valuable recruiting tool for the other side. Has that happened with the Israelis? Is that why um, Palestinian or is it one of the reasons why Palestinian uh, willingness to to work against Israel is as strong as it is? Well, Palestinians don't need any 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 more reasons they already have. It's well, that's true. Their country, it's killing their people, it's oppressing them, the ones that are still there. And Israel has been waging a war against Palestinians for close to 100 years. Um, but, I mean, the Palestinian resistance will continue as long as oppression of the Palestinians will continue. So it doesn't matter which Israeli government is in place, it doesn't matter how many Palestinians they kill, it doesn't matter how many Palestinians they incarcerate, as long as the oppression, as long as the apartheid goes on, so will the Palestinian resistance. And you're right, they don't only kill people who are related to the Palestinian resistance, they kill writers and poets and thinkers and politicians and political leaders, and they just outlawed, you know, know, not not long ago, six humanitarian organizations, so now the heads of those organizations can be targeted because they are terrorists, and so now once Israel designates them as terrorists, it's fair game. And the list goes on and on and on. And you're right. How long can they keep killing? Well, as long as they keep getting weapons from America, as long as they have legitimacy, as long as people 
parade and, and you know, are impressed by the accomplishments of the Mossad and the accomplishments of the IDF instead of, instead of uh, sanctioning or imposing sanctions on the state of Israel uh, and punishing it for its behavior, as long as this reality continues, they're not going to stop. And every child and every writer and every Palestinian or anybody that supports the Palestinian cause speaks up, they will continue to do this. And by the way, if the Iranians were not supportive of the Palestinians the way they are, they would not be assassinated. In other words, it's not just good point. people that are related to the, to the nuclear program. It has to do with the fact that Iran is a staunch ally to the Palestinian people. It has been traditionally. And this is why, you know, Israel is conducting this, is engaging in such violence against Iran. That's a good point. Israeli journalist uh, Ronan Bergman notes that there were 500 targeted killings between 1948 and 2000, and at least 1,500 in the 20 years since. In fact, what we now call targeted killings have been so successful that Israel has increased and broadened the program and is now looking at eliminating not only key figures in Iran's nuclear and missile programs, but even mid-level workers, mid-level officials working on these weapons. What do you think the the end result will be on either side? You mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, Israel has been lucky that the Iranians have not retaliated, but don't you think that eventually they'll have to retaliate? I think if the program, if this was successful, they would be they would stop. You know, I, I don't think that yeah. the success of the program is the fact that they continue to do it and they're actually enlarging the circle of, of potential uh, people who are going to be assassinated is a sign of success. I think it's a sign of a colossal failure. It means that they're not succeeding because they're killing more and more and more people. And so I think it's a colossal failure. And I think, again, who knows what the Iranians are going to decide to do. Right. I mean, the United States assassinated General Soleimani, and I think the Iranians showed great restraint. And they continue to show great restraint because I don't think the Iranians are interested in war. And so I think who knows what's going to happen and who who's going to, you know, what decisions are going to be made moving forward. But it's clearly, it's clearly, I think, the, the, the restraint and responsibility that is shown by the Iranians that this is not, has not escalated. Miko, switching over to politics, the Israeli government collapsed this week and Yair Lapid uh, has become the caretaker prime minister. New elections are now scheduled for November 1st. The New York Times says that Benjamin Netanyahu fully expects to be the next Israeli prime minister and that he's, quote, preparing, unquote, uh, for that eventuality. They don't tell us what preparing means. You've called every Israeli election right since I've known you. Uh, What are your thoughts on this one? I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) You know, I think we talked about this many, many times. Yeah. Benjamin Benjamin Netanyahu is going to come back. uh, He's going to come back strong. He's been waiting. He's been preparing for a very long time. The fact that Yair Lapid is moving into the prime minister's chair for whatever few months that are left in this tenure is, 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 is really quite funny. Um, but, uh, and I think he hopes that from that chair to conduct, you know, to, to campaign from that chair is going to help him. But, uh, I don't think he, he comes, I don't think he's, he's strong enough to, to, uh, combat Netanyahu. The previous guy, Naftali Bennett, has obviously uh, found more lucrative uh, things to do, so he's not even going to run. Wow. Um, and so, uh, yeah, because being a, being a former prime minister is very lucrative in the, in a private sector. And he's going to be making a lot of money, like other prime ministers. And so, I think Netanyahu is coming uh, is going to come back very, very strong. I don't think anybody can 
can beat him. And regardless of what the election results are going to be, he's the best guy to put together coalition. He's the best, you know, I said this before, he's the best horse trader in the business. And so all these, you know, other politicians are like little children compared to him. So we're going to, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident we're going to see him back in the prime minister seat. I think you're right. And uh, I think that, uh, that with Naftali Bennett out of the picture, I, I just don't see Benny Gantz or any of the other figures who have popped up over the last two or three years being able to put together a coalition that would be strong enough or have the wherewithal to hold off something led by Likud. It just, uh, I just don't see it happening. I think that we're stuck with Benjamin Netanyahu until, for all intents and purposes, he just decides he doesn't want to be prime minister anymore. Yeah, and he may be. I mean, who knows? He might be the one presiding over the fall of the Zionists, like the like he might be end up being the clerk of, of 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 Israel. Wow. Uh, who knows? Um, but uh, yeah, he's. I don't think anybody, and I think Gantz and all these other guys are probably going to end up working for him. My, my sense is that they're going to all you know, a big big hug and big national uh, what they call a national unity government, um, and that's probably how it's going to end up. Something like that. Would a national unity government uh, include Palestinians, like this last government did? No, no. I, even 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 uh, turncoat collaborators like right. the ones that did join the previous government won't be welcome in uh, in this in in, in the Netanyahu um, coalition. Absolutely not. What about uh, relations between Israel and the United States? Uh, we we know how. <laughs> We know how Netanyahu and Barack Obama uh, disliked each other so intensely. Uh, is that the same situation with Joe Biden? I don't think so. It doesn't seem that way. I think uh, Joe Biden is, is, is planning to visit there pretty soon. There's going to be a right a couple of weeks. Everybody's yeah, and everybody's all going to be hugs and kisses and uh, and and, uh, and orgy like like in the past. I don't think they love him as much as they love Trump. They would much prefer to have Trump. But I think it's going to be a love fest uh, all over again. Uh, I think that there's going to be some some something to do with Israel-Saudi relations. Ah, yes, that's my next question. Uh, What are your thoughts on the idea of this regional defense agreement um, that would include Israel and Saudi Arabia? Uh, They've already not they, but uh, Israel has already met in the Negev with. With Jordan, with Egypt, with the UAE, with Bahrain, I think Morocco was an observer. Uh, but the the buzz in the Middle Eastern press is that the Israelis really, really want the Saudis to participate in this. Uh, not Khaled, uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, is you know he sees himself as this is this forward thinking, out of the box leader. Is he out of the box enough to meet with the Israelis? Who knows? I mean, he needs to. He, that's a risk that he has to take. I mean, he. This is. I mean, they've already thrown the Palestinians under the bus. Yes. Joining and Saudi Arabia joining would be a real final. You know, a final throwing them. You know, a real final official uh, statement that uh, the Palestinians are being thrown. You know, under the bus by Saudi Arabia, which is a big deal. I think if Biden and Israel can bribe him uh, with, uh, with with enough, you know, if they have the goods, I'm sure he'll. Um, They'll comply. And the fact that the United States, the president of the United States is going to be there, of course, is, is a big thing. I mean, he, he wasn't, I don't think he would have gone if there wasn't something big uh, that he can come back with. I'm talking about Biden. And this would be a very big one. I don't think it's about defense. It's about, it's about collaborating with Israel. It's about collaborating with, 
with the axis of evil, and it's about, again, making sure that the Palestinian issue remains uh, off the agenda and off the, you know, off the, they won't even be brought up in, in any kind of uh, statement. No. Uh, the Palestinians are going to be out and done and, and completely shut, shut off. And by Saudi Arabia, that'd be a big thing. Yeah. You know, uh... This has been this has been going on really for so many years. I wouldn't be surprised if the Saudis just shut it down. We're going to have to leave it there. That was the voice of Miko Peled. Uh, he's a human rights activist and the author of the books The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine and Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a break and come back. Are we too early? <laughs> Doggone it. And I've got the clock. You know, we've got this National Institute of whatever clocks, uh, the the nuclear clock. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm looking at it. And yet. How many years has it been? How many years, I, I've John? only been at the we station We are going to take a break years. now. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Afghanistan. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court case that everybody's worried about and a whole yes. lot more. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We will be right back now. We bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we've got a mix of things to get to in the next segment. We are going to talk about Afghanistan. We are going to talk about the State Department's big new reward. We've got U.S. uh, elections perhaps under scrutiny at the Supreme Court, but the case it's agreed to take up. We are packing a lot into this next segment, and joining us for it is Ted Rawl. He's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer. He's also the co-host of the DMZ America podcast. Ted, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Good to be here. You know I have to start with this wild story in the Wall Street Journal today about an eight-year-old boy who was lost in the chaos at the Kabul airport during the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and has now, uh, 10 months later, been reunited with his father. The boy, I guess, lost hold of his mother's hand in the airport. I mean, I don't guess this is what the Wall Street Journal is saying. He was found outside crying by two strangers who took him home, a group of American volunteers. I'm just going to stress that again. Volunteers. Flew the boy, James, and a guardian from Afghanistan to the UAE, where he and his uncle waited for months to continue to California, where his father was. And the story tells us there are still nearly 8,000 Afghans in this Emirates humanitarian city, a refugee camp, who are waiting to be processed. The story notes that more than 1,500 Afghan children arrived in the United States without a parent. This is according to the Department of Health and Human Services. More than 100 of the 1,500. Now, this is 11 months since that evacuation, uh, nearly. More than 100 have been reunited with a mother or father. The majority have been placed with relatives and family friends. 20% remain in government care. All of this, to me, is... Pretty unbelievable. But the real kicker of the whole story for me, Ted, was this. A State Department spokeswoman said the government 
is developing a system to identify and reunite families separated during the evacuations. So they're in the middle of doing it nearly a year after the evacuation. And so my question is, am I being naive in being surprised at this? Is this really how long things take? Is it reasonable for the State Department to take nearly a year after our shambolic evacuation of Kabul to be developing a system to reunite these families? Michelle, uh, hearing about this story uh, really made me wonder, uh, and I'm going to need to look into this, whether uh, the families that were separated at the U.S.-Mexico border by the Trump administration have all ever been reunited. I yeah. don't think they have. No. Uh, you know, the U.S. The US government is, uh, you know, I guess it's bipartisan in terms of separating uh, parents from their children mm -hmm. uh, for stupid reasons and in cruel ways mm -hmm. and then not making any effort really to get them back together. Uh, I guess you are a little naive in this respect, not mm -hmm. usually a word that I would uh, ascribe to you. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's it's not surprising at all, um, given a statistic that like most people don't aren't really aware of, which is that the number of people who were evacuated from Afghanistan is roughly equivalent to the number who were qualified to leave as people who had officially helped U.S. occupation forces, but they weren't the same people. Right. The number is the same, but yes. they're different people. I mean, basically, uh, Afghans understandably, who wanted to bum and were able to pay their way in, bum rushed the planes, yep. got on in the chaos, and, uh, you know, and then now they're gone. Also, interesting part of this story is, you know, what's not said, the Taliban's not preventing these reunifications from happening, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't try to keep this kid uh, from flying to the UAE. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're, they're cooperating with it, or at least put it this way, they're not in the way, mm -hmm. um, which which sort of, again, puts more responsibility on the U.S. Look, the biggest problem here is that the United States closed their embassy in Kabul. Uh, that's what they should not have done. Mm. Uh, they should have not. They should have uh, kept their um, they should they should have consular representation in every Afghan province. The Taliban would be happy to have it. We should be engaged with them so that uh, the Af at bare minimum. Uh, Americans and people with American affiliation can have consular representation and assistance, mm -hmm. uh, you know, within that country. We should have that policy to every country in, on earth. Mm -hmm. There's uh, closing embassies and just, uh, you know, saying, "Well, I'm going to go back to my own yard and play." Yeah, is not a way. Is not a way, way to run a State Department. <laughs> and Certainly so, not you know, when you've spent 20 years waging war in a country, you know? That's right. And, yeah. you know, and trying to affect its destiny. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and now, you know, we've left one hell of a mess in terms of, you know, the, the widespread poverty and, and starvation that is happening because of U.S. sanctions. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a foul story. And, uh, you know, it's, it, unfortunately, what this really reveals is just, you know, the, the, the administration's priorities. When they're developing, starting to develop, still developing a plan. Look, it took them, you know, literally minutes to send $40 billion to Ukraine. Right. Uh, they, they, the U.S. government can do big things very fast when they want to. Yeah. If they're not doing it, it's because they don't want to. No. And this is, my, I mean, again, I just have to say, 
1,500 children, 20% of them a a year later still in government care. That's a lot of children. That's terrible. 8,000 people in this humanitarian city refugee camp still waiting to be processed. I mean, that, yeah, that is, that is shoddy, shoddy treatment. And, you know, I won't ask you if, if this is specific to Afghanistan, because, you know, you've mentioned families being separated at the border with Mexico, but I wonder if it is heightened when it comes to Afghanistan, right? Because, you know, we are at least presenting the appearance of compassion and efficiency when it comes to processing uh, Ukrainian refugees, for example. You know, I don't know how much of that is window dressing and how much of that is real. But I do think, you know, I I do think U.S. foreign policy in general, and I think this administration in particular, is particularly uh, short-sighted and disorganized. But I also want to ask if you think that Afghanistan uh, really gets sort of swept under the rug the most. I think think it does. You know, I mean, there's an old word that uh, sadly fell out of use uh, that goes back 100 years. It's called Afghanistanization. Mm -hmm. And what it means is to render a topic or a political issue so obscure that nobody cares about it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Afghanistan still sort of fits that mode, uh, you know, 100 years after the third Afghan war by the British. Uh, it is not a... Um, and so there's a direct relationship between your nationality or ethnicity uh, and how much the U.S. government will prioritize uh, any kind of uh, needs that you might have, uh, whether you're applying for a green card or, uh, you know, political asylum or whatever, you're prioritized. I mean, it's very granular. I mean, if you work within the State Department, people who work in state will tell you, you know, at any given time, it's like it it might make, you know, to you and me, it might be like, well, you know, Ecuador and Bolivia and Venezuela are kind of all in the same part of the world. And ethnically, they're all kind of the same. Mm -hmm. But I guarantee you there's a point system at state that says that, uh, you know, it's advantageous it's better to be one of be be from one of those countries than from one of the other two, mm-hmm. and that's just they have it's like a list. And Afghanistan is definitely way at the bottom of that list. I also want to ask you about a uh, our boy Erdogan wanting to make absolutely sure no one thinks he's rolling over for NATO. Uh, earlier this week, Turkey, Finland, and Sweden issued a joint statement saying, "Yep." Everything is resolved. We're going to work together. Uh, Finland and Sweden are going to alter their own laws to help facilitate Turkey's dreams. uh, And Turkey, in return, will not block their their, uh, joining NATO. Joe Biden thanked the Turkish president for his magnanimity. And now Erdogan comes out and says, yeah, 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 we we made that statement. But make no mistake, I'm going to need action before I ratify anything. And I'm not going to do that. You know, you've got to actually fork over the money now, so to speak. Uh, I'm going to need Sweden to get started on extraditing these 73 Kurds that I really want. And so I just wonder... Why why make these statements publicly? We've talked on the show. It is a it is a running theme now on the show. Uh the way Turkey has has really been playing every geopolitical fork in the road to its advantage. And and you know, this is no uh uh, this is no sort of alteration from that course. And so I wonder why Erdogan seems to have already gotten what he wants. Why is he coming out and making these statements? Is he just twisting the knife? Is he trying to please, uh, you know, some some base that he's beholden to? What do you think the deal is? I don't think it has much to do with uh, pleasing his base, although I'm not an expert on domestic Turkish politics. Mm-hmm. 
Um, uh, I do think that there's, I think this is a, uh, a strategy that, as you point out, has worked for him over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think of the Jamal Khashoggi case. Uh, you know, he was furious, uh, mainly not that Khashoggi was killed. He didn't care about that. But he, 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 he viewed it as disrespectful that the Saudis butchered him in their consulate on Turkish territory and said, you know, you, you can't do this kind of, you know, wet op crap on my territory. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, you're dissing us. So, uh, you know, he complained about it. And when he didn't uh, get the satisfaction that he wanted, he, you know, re- he revealed the blockbuster truth that the Turks had been uh, audio taping and, and tapping the insides of the, of the Saudi consulate for years. And they, and he released the recording of, of Khashoggi's murder. Mm-hmm. Um, when, what Erdogan does is he, he starts the negotiations uh, with his, you know, in, in private. And then uh, if he feels that there's any dithering or he suspects a whiff of dithering mm-hmm. uh, getting what he wants, then he turns to the media and he makes it public to drag you know, to close the deal, to mm-hmm. drag everything across the line and it's the, you know, drag the, the kill back up to his tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's that's really what he's doing. I think it's brilliant. I think it's smart. It's, uh, uh, you know, anybody who's watching geopolitics is going to say, you know, that's that's a tactic that could be emulated. I agree. It is smart. I You know, and I, I think that it is, you know, he he's not going to, he's making it very clear that he's not going to be, you know, assuaged with promises that don't come to fruition. I mean, I think that this is I think that this is terrible. Um, But I think that Turkey is and and Erdogan are really uh, playing this situation masterfully. I want. Yeah, yeah. I want to come back to uh, to the United States now for for a little bit. I got this announcement in my inbox this morning from the U.S. State Department that the department's Rewards for Justice program is offering $10 million for information on foreign interference in U.S. elections. And that's a lot of money. Um, It seems to be a sort of vague concept. But really, I also wonder, what is the deal with the timing of this, right? We do have midterm elections coming up. We have never really had midterm interference fever, right? We're six years on from 2016 and the beginning of, you know, an obsession with Russian interference in American elections. And so I wonder, why are we doing this now? Did it, did it really take this long uh, from 2016 to get here? And what impacts do you think it could have? You know, when it comes to timing of releases of government information or announcement of new programs like this, it's always hard to see if this is just like, well, uh, you know, finally they got all the requisite signatures and now it's out the door and they don't pay much attention to the timing. Mm-hmm. Or if, you know, to be charitable, they just don't, uh, you know, they just don't, they don't think about it. It doesn't cross their mind. Right. Oh, well, there is an election coming up <laughs> and this will be viewed as political. Or maybe it's more, pra- maybe it's just more straight up. Like, well, we, you know, we ha- this is the time to do it because, mm-hmm. you know, there is an election. So if there were interference, it would be occurring in the next five months, right? So I don't know is the short answer, but it definitely isn't, you know, for people like us, it's, it's you know, it's, it's hard not to be cynical, mm-hmm. um, considering all the spin that there's been about Russiagate. And, you know, of course, the other thing is, it's $10 million solving a problem that has that really has never been proven to exist. Right? Uh, there's never been, you know, I'm a huge presidential election historian. I, I love this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no evidence that a foreign country has ever 
uh, meaningfully interfered in an American election. Right. Um, so so that's, you know, whether it's hacking or anything else. Um, and that includes Russiagate. So there's kind of this, um, you know, it, it's very, it is, it's all I, you know, my only thought is, man, I, I wish I knew about the Saudis doing something so that I could, you know, get that $10 million. Right. I uh, mean, but, you but know what? It's, it's I kind of silly. I mean, there, that's 10, that, I don't think anyone's going to collect that $10 million. Either um, Yes, no. I mean, the other option is tons of people collect it because, you know, you points. I mean, here's what comes to my mind. Reality winner, right? Reality winner thought that what she was leaking to The Intercept demonstrated uh, attempts to interfere in U.S. elections. I mean, I'm, I'm certain that this is not a, a retroactive reward, but what are you going to do in that situation? I mean, yes, she, uh, you know, the, what she leaked, she, she wasn't supposed to leak what she leaked. She has uh, done her time in jail for that crime. But like, oh, where does that put people like her? Is the next person who thinks they find some kind of evidence and wants to get it to the press, are they going to get $10 million and a jail sentence? Yeah, presumably this would be a foreign national, perhaps, mm. uh, who would who would come to show up at a U.S. consulate, assuming one was still open in their country, and say, uh, you know, hey, uh, I have I have dish, um, you know, I'd like to get the ten mil to settle down in New York, mm. maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know how this works. It is it's a very it's a flashy headline, um, you know. I don't know really where the administration is going with uh, this continuous uh, emphasis on election interference. I mean, mm -hmm. even the January 6th stuff, even with the, this, you know, the last week's testimony, um, you know, is still not, it's not moving the needle. I mean, politically, Biden's big problem is inflation and a sense that he's ineffectual. Yes. You know, and, and, and nothing's going to change that. No. And I, you have to think also the, the more, I don't know, man, the more you talk about elections being vulnerable, the more oxygen you give to any theory about elections being vulnerable, right? Including the ones that you you don't like and you don't want to see furthered. It seems, again, short-sighted. Uh, the other... Yeah. The other topic I wanted to get to does have to do with elections. This is this news that the Supreme Court's going to take up this Moore versus Harper case out of North Carolina. Um, I am going to attempt to explain it, Ted, and you can tell me if I've gotten anything wrong. But basically, North Carolina Republican legislators brought the case after the state Supreme Court rejected their gerrymandered redistricting, redistricting map. Uh, a new map was then drawn up by court-appointed experts. And so these legislators are going to ask the court whether the state courts should have that power or if it is, in fact, unconstitutional, given that the U.S. Constitution says the time, place and manner of holding federal elections should be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, and also that each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. And so I looked at this Brennan Center explainer on a theory at the heart of this case, this independent state legislature theory, um, which says the meat here is all in how you understand the word legislature. Uh, and the long running understanding is that it refers to each state's general lawmaking processes, including all of their normal procedures and limitations. So if a state constitution uh, subjects legislation to being blocked by a veto by the governor or a citizen referendum. Election laws can be blocked via these same means, and state courts have to ensure that laws for federal elections, like all laws, comply with their state constitutions. If you take the other view, 
the independent state legislator theory. Uh, it says these clauses instead give state legislatures exclusive and almost absolute power to regulate federal elections. Meaning the legislators will be free to impose whatever voting related rules they want, regardless of the state constitution and state courts couldn't do anything about it. Um, I, I have a question, a larger sort of philosophical question about our democracy in a minute. But I, I wonder in general how concerned people should be about this Supreme Court taking up this case. Well, I think the Supreme Court's going to rule uh, in favor, uh, rule the wrong way, but mm -hmm. for the right reasons. Um, you know, in Bush v. Gore 2000, um, the U.S. Supreme Court said that uh, their decision in that case in favor of George W. Bush could not ever be used as a precedent uh, because right. of the fact that it was a one-time thing. Why is it a one-time thing? Because federal courts, of which the U.S. Supreme Court is one, uh, don't have jurisdiction over elections, mm -hmm. even federal elections. Mm -hmm. I mean, ele the election's federal, but they're all administered by the states. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, the thing is, it's it's constitutionally accurate mm -hmm. to say that uh, that that the states really can do whatever they want in terms of uh, redistricting or, you know, they can do really any outlandish thing they want. I know there's been the argument that the DOJ has been able to has been had the author, the authority to sign off on redistricting kind of goes back to the, the Voting Rights Act. Right. Mm -hmm. And because redistricting was used. To, has historically been used to deny people of color uh, the vote, um, but that is still, or to have representation for their votes more mm -hmm. accurately. Um, so, but still, I think the I think what this really exposes is not really the fact that the court is a is a bunch of right wing ideologues, which they are. Mm -hmm. What it exposes is that we've been relying on the Supreme Court uh, on whether it's on Roe v. Wade or gun control and so on for a lot of issues that really the, the U.S. Congress has kicked down the road mm -hmm. and not handled and not done their job mm -hmm. and not regulated, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and now, uh, the, I think quite in a way, correctly, um, the conservative majority of the court is basically just saying like, look, uh, you know, we're not going to look away and pretend the Constitution doesn't say what it says. It's, it doesn't, it never made sense for New York to say, well, you know, because you live in New York, the Second Amendment doesn't really apply here. Right. Uh, that that never did make sense. And, uh, you know, and liberals kind of like just wanted to look away and say, la, 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 I can't see that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, now now there's a solution to this and Congress can and should act and voters can and should pressure Congress. Yeah. And I mean, here's here's the question that is maybe sort of cranky. But a friend of mine in New Zealand I was talking to was talking about, uh, you know, the court overturning Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision. And she's horrified at the power of U.S. courts. And I think that is worth contemplating. Right. They're horrified that an unelected Supreme Court can overturn federal law created by an elected body. They think that uh, elected representatives of the people should have the final say. And so, you know, I think the idea of having mostly unelected courts to protect us from the actions of elected legislate, uh, legislatures is kind of odd to me in principle, right? And I do understand uh, the role of courts in, in adopting um, courses of action or positions that are moral, if not popular, right? The, the majority in a country can be wrong sometimes. But 
I also wonder if, you know, cases like this should shine a light on other problems with our democracy or our population or something, right? It is. It, it does seem, you know, I think you sort of alluded to this. Uh, we have been relying on courts to do what should be done by um, by state and federal legislatures. And the fact that they don't, the fact that you can look at a state like North Carolina and say, yeah, you, you, you know, you have a, a, a bunch of nutcases in there drawing uh, gerrymandering districts so that, uh, you know, to, to suit their political ambitions and their personal ambitions. There's obviously a problem with how people get into office if that is the case in state after state after state. And our only protection is the sort of benevolence of an unelected court. Well, I mean, I'm going to push back a little bit against. That Please, I don't know. Because I think here's the thing, you, you, I know from personal experience, uh, you know, in, in fighting fighting a stupid law <laughs> that really is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. That legislatures pass unconstitutional laws mm -hmm. all the time, and and there has to be, you know, when that happens, there has to be some arbiter who steps in and says, "Listen, you know, this law that you passed is just it's wrong, and here's why. It goes counter to the." federal constitution mm -hmm. and then the question is well who is going to be that arbiter right mm -hmm. if it's if they're elected officials uh, i mean as it is they're already politicized because they're appointed by elected officials but if they are them the, the whole idea of giving the u.s supreme court a lifetime appointment is supposedly to allow evolution like of say even someone like anthony kennedy who is presumed to be a uh, conservative when he was appointed to the court but then uh, basically moved to the left over over the years, mm -hmm. um, you know, basically that kind of um, or 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 suitor, someone like that, um, you know, they, they kind of want uh, the ability, you know, it's like they figure independence allows ind independent thought. And I think there's something to that. I think the real problem here in the U.S. separation of powers is the U.S. Constitution itself, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically unamendable. Uh, and mm -hmm. it is, I mean, look, we're the only, probably the only country uh, in, in the industrialized world and most of the developing world that doesn't have an equal rights amendment or some kind of statement that says that, uh, you know, the genders are, that, that's, that, that codifies gender equality right. in, its, in, its, in its charter. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. Constitution used to be the framework that was the model for all new countries. Uh, but if you look at new countries like South Sudan, uh, you know, and, you know, many of the uh, former Soviet republics, uh, they don't look anymore at the U.S. They look at uh, they look at the French Constitution. They look at the rights of man. They look at the U.N. Charter. Um, so it's because our Constitution is really woefully out of date. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff that's wrong with it. I mean, you know, we don't need that stuff about quartering troops. Uh, we The Second Amendment certainly would not be in there in its present form if the Constitution had been written today. So there's there's a lot of stuff that just needs to be revisited. And, um, you know, I, I think I think that's you know, if you look at, say, abortion rights, um, that probably imagine if we had an ERA the, under the ERA, I think it would have been more difficult for Roe v. Wade to be overturned or for co Congress to pass a law banning abortion rights. That's the answer I was looking for, Ted. I wanted someone to lay that out to me. So thank you. Um, the last question I have, this is just. The first of these that has come across uh, my computer screen, but we have four D.C. area gun owners yesterday filing a lawsuit against D.C. 
uh, police chief Robert Conti arguing that the ban on carrying guns on the metro, that's our subway system, is unconstitutional, uh, especially in light of the Supreme Court's uh, decision with regard to New York State's um, concealed carry law. And so, you know, this is the first I saw, but I imagine this is just going to be the first of many. And I wonder what you think our, our future looks like. Uh, it's it's going to, the metro is going to become a more interesting experience. Oh my God. Uh, I, uh, you know, I mean, as a regular rider of the New York City uh, subway system, uh, such thoughts are scary. I think, I think this particular lawsuit will probably fail on the fact that the transit authority of uh, Washington DC Metro is, an, is a separate entity that can pass its own rules mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, about conduct. For example, here in New York, there's a, you know, you can get a ticket if you put your feet on the seats. Uh, you can pretty much put your feet on the seats of like a park bench or anywhere else you want. But, you know, the, the transit authority can have its own particular rules. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it will fail. But it brings up the more general point, which is that, look, we have a Second Amendment. If you have a Second Amendment, you can buy a gun. If you can buy a gun, you can carry the gun, because what's the point of having the gun if you can't carry the gun? And, uh, you know, I mean, that's the reality of the Second Amendment. The fact is that gun control, serious gun control, should begin with a look at either uh, ratifying the overturning of the Second Amendment, the repeal of the Second Amendment, or uh, an amendment of the Second Amendment. Um, But, you know, anything short of that is just not going to go very far. You're just going to have little isolated pockets of places like airports where you can't carry guns. That was the voice of Ted Rawl. He's a cartoonist. He's an author. His most recent book is The Stringer. You can hear him on the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Ted, thanks for joining us again today. Anytime. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we're going to be right back. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Roger Stone, the Nixon and Trump-loving Republican operative, said on the Alex Jones show this week, I did not watch the Alex Jones show. Oh, you missed it? Yeah, I missed it. I only saw a little clip. That not only is Donald Trump running for re-election, but he will announce his candidacy in the next three weeks. Stone said that he had spoken to the former president who said that he wanted to beat Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to the punch while DeSantis is tied up running for re-election as governor of Florida. What he didn't mention was that DeSantis has raised, get this, $125 million for his re-election campaign mm-hmm. for governor of Florida. I wonder, I wonder what he's going to do with all the extra money. Uh, Several other Republicans have made it clear that they will run for president even if Trump runs, including former Vice President Mike Pence, former Secretary of State and CIA Director Mike Pompeo, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. There might be one or two others, but at least a dozen others are waiting to see what Trump does. There are no primary elections scheduled for the next two and a half weeks, but all the political analysis lately is about the value of Donald Trump's endorsement. So far, he's running at about 50%. Some states love Donald Trump and the candidates he endorses. Others don't. 
And the latest polls show some really interesting races. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is beating former Congressman Beto O'Rourke 48 to 40. Now, that sounds like it's it's just too much to overcome. But Greg Abbott's been governor for like 60 years, you know, and uh, he's not at 50 percent. And so... You have to watch that race. Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock is trouncing former football star Herschel Walker 54 to 44. That's significant. There was a breaking news headline the other day that Herschel, someone who was like the oldest Medal of Honor recipient from World War II, died. Saw that. I thought for a second that was Herschel Walker. Oh, yeah. no. Oh, boy. He was, he was the last surviving World oh. War II Medal of Honor winner. Wow. Yeah passed away. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and former Georgia State Senator Stacey Abrams, get this, are tied at 48-48. And in Wisconsin, polls show Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican, losing to every single one of the four Democrats running against him. Mm. Dramatic. Now, Johnson promised that he would only serve two terms, and he has served two terms. Mm -hmm. And now he says he changed his mind, and he wants three or four So unusual. Yeah. We're joined by Ray Valencia. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Welcome, Ray. Hi, nice to be back. So I just want to say it out loud. Donald Trump is not going to be the RNC nominee for 2024. I don't think so. Uh, He may run. He may do some crazy dramatic things. But by the time we get to the through the primaries in 2024, I don't think he's going to be the guy. No, I don't think so either for a couple of reasons. Number one, the guy was not just president, right? So Mm -hmm. at least for his party, he's an incumbent. He's seen as an incumbent. Um, But he's got the best name recognition. He's got the most money Mm -hmm. and he's only polling 50%. Yeah. What's that all about? Well, and when, when other candidates jump into this race Mm -hmm. and you know, their their lives depend on on this campaign. They're either going to win or they're going to lose. They are going to attack him like he has never been attacked before. You know, in in 2016, when he's talking about uh, what was it? Uh, low energy Jeb Bush yeah. mm-hmm. and Marco Rubio standing in a puddle of his own pee. Little Marco. The, yeah. Little, Mar- little Marco Rubio. Mm-hmm. They weren't sure how to respond to this. Well, now they're sure and they're not going to take it. And so I think that Trump thinks this would be a cakewalk to the nomination. Mm-hmm. It's not, no. but I don't think he's going to run anyway. I don't care what yeah. Roger Stone says. Here's a guy in in Teacher Donald Trump, I'm sorry. Hand. I just have a quick question. Please. I don't. It, how are they going to respond to it? It's going to be like a way that's cool. It doesn't make them look bad. How they figured it out? Oh no, I think that they're gonna that they're going to um, that they're going to call him names. Okay. I think that's what it's come down to. I mean, Hillary Clinton tried it with Dangerous Donald. Yeah. So you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, not all names are equal. I just wonder. Okay, so they, there's someone someone back there. They've got someone in the mean nickname department yeah. for Donald Trump. Right. Okay. This, okay. Is, this is what American politics have come to. Oh, yeah. They'll listen. turn yeah. on him. That is, listen, yeah. all the, Those all the Trump's nicknames were good. Yeah, they were good. So I don't know who, they've, who their secret weapon is back there. Who's going to make them as good? But okay, I was just curious what, what know, the I, neutralizing factor was going to be. I remember right before the Iowa caucuses, Jeb Bush just being utterly perplexed as to how to respond to this. 
Mm-hmm. To you know, low energy Jeb. He just mm-hmm. stands there like he's uh, he's gonna fall asleep. And and Jeb Bush is just like speechless. Like, yeah. how do I respond to this? I remember watching a clip. Now there'll be someone in his ear going, yeah. "Call him a yeah. dump truck Trump or something." Right, yeah. exactly. I remember watching um, the vote count at the uh, caucus in Iowa, and they're they're counting the votes. Uh, Trump, Trump, Rubio, Trump. This one, that one, and then he goes Jeb Bush, and the counter says, "Really?" <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, "Yeah, yeah, well, really." There's you know, one raises, vote for Jeb Bush. That raises a question: like the competitor to Trump, you know, is it going to be the bombastic, you know, kind of a Trump mini me, or I think you know, it has to be like Ron DeSantis. It right? has to be. He's, he's the Donald Trump with a really good vocabulary. Yeah, right. So the Republican still a Party market. has changed. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Look, look what happened to George P. Bush. Uh, George P. Bush has lost the last two or three races that he's run in in mm-hmm. Texas, in Texas. Yeah. And so I think that the Republican Party of the Bush family is gone. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. Yeah. And if Donald Trump has too much baggage, I think they're going to look for somebody who reminds them very much of Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, it's not going to be the straight-up, straight-laced Republican that we would no. love to see. It's no. going to be another Trump-like character. But, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot this week about the politics of the Supreme Court and what's been going on. And I think Georgia and these kind of areas are really good indicators of what's going on. We're seeing Stacey Abrams closing the lead on Brian Kemp. Mm-hmm. And it may have something to do with that, you know, the Supreme Court ruling reversing Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. and the importance that governors are going to play. Oh, right? yes. Um, a thing that's been very disappointing to witness, too, is how Democrats have been fundraising like crazy on the reverse over Roe v. Wade. Oh, I'm getting two dozen emails a day. Yeah, at least. And and I'm just left with the question, like, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you can't. OK, get rid of the filibuster. You talked yesterday about the problems that, that creates for Democrats down the road. So mm-hmm. that's really not mm-hmm. a viable option. Whatever legislation they pass, the Supreme Court can overrule it as being unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to give money to a Democrat and it's going to make a difference, I'd go down ballot. Oh, totally. <laughs> you know? Totally. You know, this is something that George McGovern mm-hmm. used to talk about in the 70s and the 80s. One of the reasons that George McGovern became such an important person in the Democratic Party was that he was from a solidly ruby red state. He was from South Dakota. And what he did, and he he wasn't a lawyer or a politico. He was a history professor. And so what he did was he began building the South Dakota Democratic Party from scratch. It just didn't exist in the 1950s. And he was able to win a Senate seat. And from that position, he was able to to build enough of a Democratic Party infrastructure that he was able to get people elected to the state legislature. Democrats uh, were elected uh, governor. There were Democratic senators. That's all kind of gone away because the Clintons didn't believe in this national strategy. Right. But this national strategy worked. You know, how how are you supposed to expect, for example, um, Nebraska to uphold your rights as a Democrat when there are no Democrats? In Nebraska, exactly, or Idaho, or Utah, or West Virginia. Mm-hmm. So you've got to build these structures from the 
ground up. That's where the money has to go. And there's no other game in town right now. So that's right. Uh, they're going to have to do it. They're going to have to do what they've not been doing over the last uh, couple decades yeah. now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you look at the Republicans, right? I'm thinking about the fallout for Republicans in terms of what happened with Roe v. Wade. Okay. So, 30% of Republicans are are pro-choice Republicans. I mean, they want some restrictions, but there's a lot of folks living in red states that are Republican that are in a state of shock right now. Okay, but then my question to you is, are the Democrats smart enough to capitalize on this and to turn some of these races? Are they smart enough to make the next race about abortion rights? Well, they're trying, but Are there's they? a lot of... Because well, they've been pretty darn quiet well, since the Supreme Court made their decision. That's, yeah, I know that's been in the conversation. I've been hearing a lot of conversation about it, but I don't know what they can do about it. I mean, that's really the question. Like, what can they do about you it? You right? hit the Republicans over the head with mm-hmm. a cudgel every Time. single day. Abortion, mm-hmm. abortion, 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 yeah. and they're not. Well, they better they're get not. on it. Because when you look at the polls, we talked about this. It was our opening segment on... Politics Friday. And I said, what are the polls on the importance that Democrats rank abortion on? And it was pretty low, but it was creeping up. So before the decision, before the decision. Uh So now I'm interested to see how much importance is it now? Because if it isn't more important, as I suspect that it is, like you're saying, the Democrats better really run with it, particularly in, you know, this puts uh, states in play like Arizona and Michigan and Pennsylvania that are really going to be won on the margins, you know, 1.8 million votes for the Senate uh, primaries. And it came down to like they were recounting them a handful of votes. So mm-hmm. the way that you win is on the margins here. A few people coming out, a few more Democrats coming out and a few Republicans staying home and abortion can be that issue because there are a lot of pro-choice Republicans. There are more pro-choice Republicans than there are pro-life Democrats. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And the polls, I've seen several different polls. I saw one at 55. I saw one at 61. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, Clearly, a majority of Americans support uh, abortion rights. Exactly. And, And, you know, another thing the Democrats need to do that they're not doing Mm -hmm. is they're not going out there and playing hardball and saying, do you want to keep a Supreme Court like this? Yes. Do you want to keep Mm -hmm. a Supreme Court that's that's uh, that's run by by extremists from the mm-hmm. right wing, then vote Republican, oh. right? Well, here's another, like, you know, long-term looking down the road. If the Supreme Court continues on this path, the far right, and they reverse things like gay marriage, and, you know, that's right. the fear, right? Right. Um, the conversation about adding Supreme Court justices onto the Supreme Court, I think, will rise in popularity because there's not going to be another remedy to have well, to deal with this for, what, a generation? Our friend, our friend Bruce Fine, who's one of the most important constitutional scholars in America, says that there is not one word in the Constitution to stop the Democrats from adding seats to the Supreme Court. A simple act of Congress is enough to do it. Um now, this is where the the filibuster is important mm-hmm. for the Republicans. But he said, you know, over the course of American history, we've had five Supreme Court justices, mm-hmm. seven, nine. We had an even number once. Mm-hmm. We had 12. Right. Yeah. Well, now we have nine and we've had nine for right. quite a long time. If the Democrats want 
11 or 13, yeah. they can. So I don't know when it's going to become more politically safe for Democrats to talk about that and, and make it a part of the conversation and yeah. run on it. I, I anticipate it at some point in the future. It's probably soon now. But I think, I think it's the Republicans be... will take to the streets with their guns if oh, the Democrats yeah. try to expand the Supreme yeah. Court. Anyway, it's the stuff I've been thinking about this week. Well, you know, the, Franklin Roosevelt tried to do it mm-hmm. in 1933, 34. And um, and even Democrats were up in arms saying, whoa, oh, yeah. whoa, 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 we don't want to do that. And Roosevelt also talked about, hey, justices need to retire at some point. Yeah. You know, we need yes. younger folks on the Supreme Court to represent. You know, interpret, interpreting this uh, Constitution where it's not, we're not going back to 1700. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So uh, in some of these other, some of these other uh, uh, races, are, are you seeing anything surprising when we talk about the Wisconsin Senate race or the, the big races in Georgia, for example, last week we talked or two weeks ago, we talked about Nevada and uh, the Senate race in Nevada and the Senate race in Arizona. Are you seeing anything that's surprising to you? Not surprising. I I think some of these gaps are closing because we just got this big news out of the Supreme Court. I think the interesting question would be how much uh, uh, longevity is it going to have? There's so many other cross currents with the economy. You know, you were just talking today about... Uh, inflation and the stock market being down. I mean, that's really going to affect a lot of households. So it's going to be your pocketbook, your civil liberties. It's going to be things that are, you know, voters are really going to have to weigh out. And when I look at, we look at polls and you try to translate that into voter behavior and polls don't necessarily translate directly into voter behavior. But when I look at the folks that are really pro-choice, they tend to be voters. They're higher educated, they're white, they're you know, so you're talking about the voting class that's going to be, you know, probably activated. The people that are most affected are the poor and people of color that typically don't turn out to vote. Right. Although young people, this could be really interesting. Joe Biden has lost a lot of support among young voters. Yes. Is this the type of thing that will drive young voter turnout that could help, you know, overcome some of this uh, disapproval? That so many voters are holding right now. Yeah, that's the question. Yeah, that's the question. Uh, Politico's latest projections, uh, which track with the Cook Political Report and with Larry Sabato's crystal ball, say that the House is likely Republican Mm -hmm. and the Senate is leaning Republican. I went state by state by state again. I agree that the House is Republican, mm-hmm. right? It's there's the Democrats because of gerrymandering and redistricting. The Democrats just can't keep the House. The numbers aren't there in the Senate. You know, unless the Republicans pull upsets in Nevada and Arizona, I think the Democrats are going to pick up two seats. Oh, that would be. Yeah, I think the Democrats win in Pennsylvania. We win in Pennsylvania. I think Georgia. they win. Well, they have Georgia. They have Georgia, right. They win in Pennsylvania and they win in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. I think they hold New Hampshire. Hampshire, They hold Georgia. Georgia. And then the key is Nevada Mm -hmm. and uh, Arizona. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, well, we've all seen how important judicial nominations have become. That's really what the Democrats need to do to, to hold on to, you know, what little they have left. 
Okay, shall we leave it there? I think it's time for one of our favorite segments here on Political Misfits. It is indeed. Stories of the Friday, and that means it's time for News of the Weird. Or News of the Weird, Where we tell you about some of the more (laughs) offbeat stories in the news. Hey, John, before we start that, can I slide Uh in one story that I just wanted to? It's It's not a long one. I just, since we had talked about the protests in Ecuador, I wanted to make sure we don't forget to say that the government has come to an agreement with protesters there. They are wow. going to decrease fuel prices, uh, not by as much as protesters had asked, by about half that amount, but that is something. Uh, they are also going to put limits on the expansion of oil and mining development and consult with indigenous communities on these projects in the wow. future. That was a key demand. Uh, so, yeah, so they've come to this agreement. Indigenous leaders have said they are going to suspend protests for now, and the government has 90 days to deliver concrete solutions wow. to the demand. So what That's seems to be initially a success for, for this protest movement in Ecuador, and I wanted to make sure, since we had been talking about it, that we tell you about yeah. this at least uh, initial resolution. That's great news. Yeah. That would oh, that make Stephen cool. Donziger very happy, too. Yeah, I see. I thought that was worth worth sliding in here before yeah. we get to the fun. I'm glad you sort brought that up. fun stuff. I know one of these stories, John, and it well, doesn't well, sound let's, fun. Let's start off with that one. There, There's a story Bit out there that just made me, made me cringe. A, a nightmare turned into a reality. Let me give our listeners a trigger warning here, yeah, too. Yeah, trigger warning. <laughs> Some sensitive areas about yes. to be discussed here. Yes, genitalia to be discussed. Mm-hmm. An Ohio man was alarmed. To hear weird noises coming from his genitals. Noises. Can you imagine? Yes. The unidentified 72-year-old heard a hissing noise and has been diagnosed as the first person in the world with something called a whistling scrotum. That sounds like a cool band name. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It does. This is according to a new study published in the American Journal of Case Reports. The man who was out of breath with a swollen face was was rushed to his local emergency room complaining about this bizarre condition. They x-rayed him. His his chest is where they started, right? right? They because when your scrotum is whistling, that necessitates a chest X-ray. I guess. How would anyone know that, right? If this is not a thing that's happened before, but okay, that's fine. So as it turned I think out, start with a scrotum. But what well, do I no, know? as it turned out, that that's it's I've been approaching life did. all wrong, John. <laughs> well, well, they they found that this poor man had what they call excessive amounts of air floating around his chest. Ugh. It caused his lungs to collapse. And so later they found that, you know, as, as, as they're treating him, Mm -hmm. right, they reinflated his lungs, Mm -hmm. they're treating him and they found that this strange whistling sound was coming from an open wound on the left side of his scrotum. (sighs) The injury was left over from testicle surgery five months earlier. They didn't fully close him up. It's not good. And it allowed trapped air to begin escaping. So they inserted two plastic tubes into his chest to drain the excess air. His condition continued to deteriorate with the amount of air trapped between his lungs and his chest wall increasing. It then compared, compelled doctors to add a third chest tube. Finally, the poor guy's lungs recovered after three days in the hospital. And then after the recovery, he was released from the hospital in good condition. He did, however, have air that was still trapped in his scrotum. This is a condition called pneumoscrotum, which is crazy. And uh, 
There was also air in his abdomen that remained there for two years. Air trapped in the scrotum, I feel like just a good squeeze would get it out. I don't understand how you, you would think. You just like, you do it you with one think. hand. Like, what do you do? <laughs> do you burp? Toys, I, I, I you don't know. know. I have to say, I... Uh, I, you guy. guys have seen the AI generated images thing floating around. I've just made one of uh, noises coming from genitals that you guys can all look at. <laughs> it's very trippy. Crazy. Well, there's another one that's even crazier. Okay. This, this one from Shelbyville, Indiana. I'm coming in cold to this one. I don't know this story. Richard Kayser mm-hmm. of Shelbyville, Indiana, mm-hmm. took his friend John Hoop out fishing. Okay. Right? In the Ohio River. We've all done this as kids. You go at the Ohio yeah. River and yeah. Uh, This was last week. The hope was that Hoop would catch his first blue catfish. He had never caught one, and they fight, and they're delicious, right? So he's out there looking for a a blue catfish. As soon as he started fishing, he catches something. It turns out it was a blue catfish, but it was very lumpy. Oh, no. That's the word that he uses. Okay. It was very lumpy. And he speculated that perhaps it had just eaten another fish, or maybe it had eaten a turtle. So a turtle. Uh huh. Okay. Sorry. So you know these these catfish have big mouths. Will you eat? Would they eat a whole turtle whole with turtle, the shell? I guess. Okay. I guess. They Learning a lot in this segment. Well, they cut the okay. thing open, and oh, instead, okay. what they found inside was a dildo. What? <laughs> a, giga- a gigantic dildo. <laughs> And the catfish had eaten it whole. Uh, I mean, yeah. He says, quote, when it came out, John, my wife and I started laughing. My wife immediately covered my daughter's eyes. Uh Their young daughter was Mm -hmm. on the boat and turned her away from it. Um, I doubt that they ate the catfish. I think they were grossed out by it because he said he's going to go back out fishing and try to catch another catfish. The catfish now has an Instagram account. It's got an OnlyFans account where you can see uh, more of its exploits. Wow. Uh, Just great stuff here, John. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to dial it back a little on this next one. You may have seen this one in the Washington Post. Mm The 80s. Totally ruled in a recent auction at Heritage Auctions in Texas. Heritage mm-hmm. Auctions is the third largest auction house in America. It's a very serious, you know, they, they do high-end stuff like coins and artwork, and they're the go-to auction house for for serious baseball cards and stuff like that. So there was a, a an auction last week of VHS tapes. Can you imagine this? Oh, yes. A VHS, but not just like a VHS tape that you have sitting in a box in your garage. These had been sent to PSA, which is the the big grading organization in Mm -hmm. California. And then they're sealed in these, you know, hermetically sealed in these plastic cases. And they're graded on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being perfect mint condition. Okay. So they had a shrink wrapped near mint condition it was a, a it was an eight and a half on a scale of one to ten mm-hmm. original 1986 vhs tape of back to the future oh i thought you were gonna say if you had said crocodile dundee my no, heart no. would have exploded no but close oh, i love back to the future though close. i do too back to the future movie. so uh, what's michael it? j fox yes. really one of my my pr- Probably my first human crush. Great, Love great movie. Fox so much. Yeah. Totally fun. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's held its entertainment value. Yeah. Remains all these charming. Years. 
Would you pay $75,000 for a VHS tape of Back to the Future? I would pay $0 for a VHS tape. It's just cool that they exist and other people want them. Well, somebody paid $75,000. This is the highest price ever paid at auction for a sealed and graded VHS tape. Pretty wild. I was just listening to a story that I meant to mention to you, John. I think it was, uh, again, in the Wall Street Journal on the art market. And how uh, the art market it's gone crazy is soaring, right? They crazy. they have an interview now with the uh, head, head of, of Sotheby's, exactly talking about why that is. But I remember listening to the podcast, and they were saying, "Well, like part of it is during the pandemic, mm-hmm. people had a little money, and they you know they they were interested in buying the stuff, and interest yeah. in auctions really took off, and it's sort of across the board." Oh, let me tell it's you like, something. And I know you. I know this is something that, that yeah, you follow. My, that you're my son in. and I two years ago we were in a baseball card mm-hmm. store. And um, we saw a, Mickey, a 1958 Mickey Mantle card. I don't own any Mickey Mantle cards. It was $200. And I said, oh, there's a Mickey Mantle card. It's 200 bucks. I happen to have $200. Mm-hmm. So I bought it, mm-hmm. right? And it was graded a five on the one to 10 scale by mm-hmm. PSA. Then COVID hit. And I watched that card go crazy. Yeah. And then I got a notification from PSA. I'm going to say it was on Thursday saying the card's worth $875. Mm-hmm. And it, there's nothing special about this card at all. No, I, I just, just mentioned a second ago. And it hasn't stopped. It is just con- it's yeah. continued to generate interest. Values are continuing to increase. It's a, you know, the anomaly. Well, really. And it's, it's not just cards. It's like a whole bunch of crazy stuff. I mentioned a second ago, this Back to the Future went for $75,000. Um, what about Back to the Future 2? Went for sixteen thousand two hundred and fifty. Back to the Future Three, which nobody nobody watched. Thirteen thousand seven fifty. Back to the Future trilogy box set from the nineties. Ten thousand dollars, and others were Goonies. Remember that stupid movie? This is strange to me. I mean, fifty thousand dollars. I loved Goonies so much. I loved that movie Uh, when I was. I I took my first wife on a date to see Goonies, and we were nineteen years old. That's Jaws, 32.5. Ghostbusters, 24,000. Top Gun, 17.5. We're in the wrong industry. Are people watching these things? No, no, no. They're sealed. I don't they're sealed in the plastic it's cases. Very, I don't it's understand just so you it. can look at it you and say, just, wow, but there's look no what I own. pleasure in looking at a black box. No, there's no pleasure. I mean, no. well. <laughs> Some people get some, but you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's bizarre to me. I understand like purchasing a thing that gives you joy to look at, but if you're not even going to use this thing. Seriously. Yeah. But I have a story for you also. It's not quite news of the weird. It's more news of the sad. I, I missed this headline last week, but the army has tossed out its requirement that potential recruits have a high school diploma or GED. Yeah. So it's neither. It's not wow. that you needed to graduate. You could, the, the, you know, GED, of course, should be fine. Um, but no, you don't need to have either of those things. And this is the even weirder part. If you ship to basic training this fiscal year, which ends October 1st. Uh-huh. So it's not even like a, a long-term policy change. It's just a, we need to get some bodies in the door change. Not good Seems at all. Seems grim to me. Not good at all. Yeah. And, you know, didn't yeah. the military just a couple of years ago say that you you can't join the military if you have uh, sleeve tattoos? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that that's one of the newer regulations. Oh, I feel like if they dropped that one, they yeah, would get Yeah, drop that recruit. one before you drop the GED yeah. high school diploma rule. Yeah. 
So, I don't like that at all. Yeah, no, I don't either. A sign, a sign of things not going well, I think. All right, I think we're going to have to leave it there on yes, this ma'am. Friday. I want to say thanks to all of our guests and, of course, thanks to our producer and our engineers here. Uh, we are going to not be here on Monday, of course, because it's the 4th of July holiday, but we'll be back on Tuesday. So on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you Tuesday. Tuesday.